between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And unto this mass movement, destined to bear the jeweled crown of geekdom upon its troubled brow, it is we, mass movement's chroniclers, who alone can tell thee of its saga. Let us tell you of the days of geek adventure. Welcome to another episode of Geekorama, boys and girls. This time we've got a special episode for you. Uh, I recently caught up with Kyle Tusha and Charles Adai. So this is this episode is going to be devoted to those two uh, interviews. So first up, we've got Kyle Tusha, who was the former guitarist and vocalist of Dr. No, a nardcore and crossover legend and godfather. He's a VFX genius and he's the author of Livewire, which has just been published by Crystal Lake Books. Uh, at the end of the interview, we're going to play out with There Is No Devil by Dr. No, which is a sort of exclusive track to the podcast, um, before jumping into an incredible interview with Charles Adai, the writer of Gun Honey, which is published by Hardcase Crime Comics and Titan Comics in the UK, and the founding father of Pop Powerhouse Hardcase Crime Books. So, um, without further ado, enjoy. Uh, first up, this is Kyle T- Tausha, and um, this is what Kyle had to say. Stick around, folks, because this is a great interview. Hey, Kyle, how are you? I'm just dandy. How about you? I apologize for being tardy. That's all right, sir. No problem at all. I don't so. feel tardy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Tuesday, so we can't all be you know, on form. I'm, I'm certainly not after a hard day in work life. So, right. I just got caught up in stuff this morning, so I'm really sorry about that. that but, uh, here we are now. That's absolutely fine. So, how how do you go from the hardcore scene to writing horror novels? Well, as uh, when I, I can't tell if my camera's on or not, but I'm assuming it is. No, um, it's not. It's not bad. Uh, That's okay. I can hear you. So, is well, we are. Are you just doing this for audio, or yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Well, then I don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what happened was uh, I've written off and on my entire life as right. a kid, and uh, and I mean stories in the second grade with my friends, you know, about sci-fi invasions. Godzilla stuff because Godzilla movies were played a lot on TV. I was born in the early 60s. So in late 60s, you know, early mid 70s, that stuff was on TV all the time. King Ghidorah and Gamera and all that stuff. Loved that stuff. Frankenstein, Godzilla, all of it. So I used to write little stories, you know, with Godzilla and monsters I made up in it and things like that. And mostly to correct what I thought were grievous errors in the story about why is there an eight-year-old kid telling this general how to conduct military operations? You know, I was <laughs> even when I was eight, I knew that was bullshit. You know? <laughs> I know, come on, I'm already buying a guy in a suit, and um, so I would do that. And then, as uh, and the music in those films, especially in in the horror movies and and in those giant monster films, was all Devil's Interval. Minor key, dong, 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 that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So you first, you hear Black Sabbath when you're about 12 years old, and Iomi's doing that, right? He's doing the <laughs> exact same thing. And I go, oh my God, but I didn't know guitars could sound like that. And, you know, there was, a, you know, so I'm discovering rock and roll as a youngster in the early mid-70s, probably mid-70s, really. And uh, so 
I, I made the connection between that music, those images, and Sabbath stuff was really dark. And that's what really just locked the whole thing together for me, because that's when I wanted to play guitar. <coughs> Excuse me. Hmm. Because I was exposed to that stuff first because punk rock didn't exist yet, you know, at least as we know it. You know, so I was into Blackmore and Johnny Winter and, uh, uh, of course, Sabbath Zeppelin, T-Rex, Pink Floyd, all the stuff when I was a kid. So at the same time, later on, we started getting stuff in the American magazines about the stuff happening in the London clubs. Right. And we started hearing about the damned and the pistols. And then the Ramones would go over from New York. And so we're seeing this in these magazines. There's something to this. Finally, they start playing it on not very popular radio stations here. And I hear that and I hear the pistols and I hear the Ramones and the damned and all. And I go, Oh, wow. I mean, it's just basically, it's just really stripped down hard rock without a great <laughs> guitar player. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> when you break it, when you break it all the way down, yeah, that's, that, that's, uh... That's exactly what it is. I mean, but there was a movement behind it. You know, there's, of course, a political push. There was a lot of snarling about poverty, especially the stuff that was coming out of Britain and everything at the time, too. And I'm kind of too young to really absorb all that. But uh, the first concert I ever saw was Pink Floyd on the Animals Tour. And that was an enormous production in 1977. I mean, the concert was in quad. I mean, you know, it was, oh, my God. So it's unattainable, right? When you're a kid, you want to play guitar. There's no way you can do that. So fast forward a few years, I see Black Flag at a small club called the Starwood in uh, in Hollywood. And we'd already been buying their records. A friend of mine and I, you know, he had the, uh, <coughs> what was that first signal? Um, Nervous Breakdown, Jealous right. Again came out. And so we go see these guys. We know the songs. Des Cadena was singing them. That's how long ago this was. It was before Rollins. So and like yes, yeah, like 80, 80, 80 81? Probably, because I was yeah. either still in high school or just out. And uh, it was a revelation, as they say. You know, it was regular guys. Their gear was held together with duct tape and Hail Marys, you know. And uh, it was absolute chaos in there. You're right up next to it. You know, you can, you know, you can hear the amplifiers and the PA, you know, I'd never been that close to something that intense, you know, it was just, so uh, <laughs> that's what inspired it all to, to start the band and, and all that stuff. I go, Oh, you don't have to play like Glenn Tipton to be able to be in a band. Right. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, it helps, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> It certainly helped. Especially if you want to make money, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, they went down a rabbit hole of very bad songwriting for a while. Um, uh, yeah, their first record, their early records are great, by the way. But um, anyway, so it, it made it achievable to the normal, you know, to the normal guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't this exalted, lofty Greek statues with guitars that it appeared to be in, in the rock mags when you're that young. So anyways, how did it get to horror? So uh, I'd written off and on my whole life. And so when we were kids and we were on the road, um, I was reading a lot of Lovecraft. I was reading a lot of King. Clive Barker was hot at the time. Books of Blood had just come out in rapid succession. Damnation Game, that stuff. So I'm reading that and among other things. And since I've always liked to write off and on anyway, I started really thinking, I'd like to give this a try. I think I can do this, you know. And um, so in the mid 80s, I started trying to do... adult level fiction okay and and live wire the book that just came out last friday from mm-hmm. crystal lake publishing the very first draft of that story was written then 
So, I so think. it's it's you revisiting a book from the eighties. That, that, that's that's live wire now. Right. Well, and yeah. then I rewrote it again in my thirties. I think in the <clears throat> about in the midnight. Actually, the year the book takes place. The book takes place in nineteen ninety three, and that was the last time I wrote it. Okay. That's the time I rewrote it, which has a lot of the elements that are in the book now. So it started off kind of as a as a cheap imitation of trucks, the Stephen King story, you know, because it's, oh, look, high tensions are walking around. We're trapped in a desert gas station, right? I mean, <laughs> so because you you start imitating the things that you that are inspiring you and you don't have the skills yet. I hadn't lived long enough. I was 24 and um, I'm 60 now. And um, so by the so See, that, that, that absolutely melts my brain. You The, the fact that you're 60, given that when this Island Earth, as the record came out, it was like, oh my yeah, God, yeah. That's, that's a game changer for me. Cause it was oh, that, thank you. Well, it was like the crossover scene, you know, like one of the things that always sort of makes me slightly mad is when people say crossover, they always say COC, you know, DRI mm-hmm. to a lesser right. extent, Ludicrous from New York. They And they never, ever mentioned Dr. No, but you guys were right there at the forefront of it. Oh, yeah. And think you know? we're the only people who got shit for it for yeah. some reason, which, which I never understood because it was okay for COC to sound like Sabbath. And nobody is more Iomi than Woody Weatherman. Right. I mean, no, I mean, you know, I'm a big fan, but that guy nailed it. And uh, he used to have this shirt along every time we played together, he was wearing this sleeveless shirt. And the back of the shirt, he dutted himself in magic marker. It had black flag bars. And you remember their logo with black a flut and flag on yeah. the bottom. Of course, he'd replaced flag with Sabbath. So he had the, oh, <laughs> it was awesome. You know, I go, I want to know that guy. And uh, and he's, you know, he's cool as shit. I haven't seen him in years. But, uh, but it was okay for them to be heavy as hell. It was okay for DRI to have chunky, deep riffs, suicidal to have screaming leads. Right. You know, all that stuff. But when we did it, for some reason, I got we got roasted for it, which I never really understood. Well, you do, you, do you think it's because there was, it was such a progression? I mean, from one record to the next, and then the people said, well, you guys were, were leading the Nardcore charge, now you're leading the crossover charge. So do you I think maybe, maybe <laughs> that, that's it? I, I don't know, because, you know, essentially, there'd be no Nardcore without you guys and RKL. That would be it. There, there wouldn't be any. And then RKL go and do the crossover thing as well, but they don't get the same shit yeah. either. Yeah. And Chris Rest is a very good guitar player, you know? Well, yeah. And uh, even when he was really young, he was good, mm. you know? I mean, he's, he's, he's one of those naturals. And uh, I'm not, I had to struggle, you know, for everything on that instrument. But he, uh, <clears throat> he's very good. And it is weird because I, even what I just told you a few minutes ago about the music mm. I listened to coming up before punk rock happened, all of it is rooted in that stuff. Like I said, with, Iomi and Blackmore and Page yeah. and all those guys, because that's what was around, you know. Remember those guys, those songwriters in the seventies, and this is my theory of why there was a songwriting bloom. Their parents were into swing and big band and ragtime and classical, right? So they just got nothing but melody and music theory the whole time they were growing up, right? right? And then, then they added American blues on top of that. Music technology and recording technology uh, all exploded at once during the middle of. I mean, that was the perfect storm. You know, and that was yeah. like miracle grow for songwriting. And that's why that era was so fertile. But um, as to why it, it seemed like uh, for some reason, in a lot of ways, Dr. No wasn't, uh, I don't want to say lumped into the category, but associated with it as heavily as the other bands, I should say. Mm. I don't know. It was odd. I mean, Wreckage, despite its horrible cover, was um, 
you know, that was, aside from war theater and stuff, I mean, it was pretty much a straight ahead 80s thrash out record, you right. know, with a lot of Sabbathy stuff in it. And, but it was still very identifiable as a Dr. No record, I think. You know? Yeah. Did you well, listen to the uh, MP3 I sent you last week? I, I did. That, that, why did you give up on the band again? Why did the band sort of grind to a halt? Because I know there's, there's two versions of, of Dr. No. Well, that's not a version. That's a cover band. That's a tribute band with a, you know, it's brand, the, the Brandon yeah, Cruz. That's the Brandon Cruz. I can't achieve anything on my own uh, project. But yeah. <laughs> that's not, it's probably best not to go down that avenue. But I see, I don't understand yeah. why, why you, when you've got tracks like that and you're still writing that quality of music, why you suddenly said, well, no, I don't want to do it anymore. Well, we were uh, actually, uh, Tim and I put those, those, and he was the other guitar player in records. He's mm-hmm. also an audio engineer. And uh, so that was convenient. And uh, so we did those uh, in a in a mix down room over at Henson. And there's that's all just going through first gen line six pods. Uh, the drums are actually uh, he programmed all those in MIDI and Pro Tools triggering. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. So it's just he and I doing all that. And it was to get the these were built as templates to go into the studio with mesas and bogners and the whole shibuli. And re-record them for real, make them just sound thunderous. The demos aren't bad; they probably sound better than, you know, uh, the early Doctor No records. But um, the uh, we can, there's other songs too. We'll probably be releasing soon. We did about seven, and just uh, he was uh, buried and stuff. I ended up buried and worked really hard. We couldn't get t- together anymore to finish it. Then it just kind of just fizzled out and. Holding on to drummers has proven just so difficult. And uh, <laughs> it's the eternal story of playing in the band. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially if you're not generating a lot of income. I mean, the, the stuff we did from between 2011 and 2015 from a financial standpoint, it paid for itself, mm-hmm. but we weren't making 30 grand a night or anything like that. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty much still a self financed thing. We've never had management. We never got out of the, you know, we never got beyond the, uh, the club band level really right. even though we did some nice tours in the in the 80s with exploited and bad brains and circle jerks and you know we <laughs> we we traveled with some cool bands and played some large venues with them and that was great you know but um you know we never really stepped fully into the professional arena you know dr no was always more or less an underground thing you know so is this something you're gonna revisit do you think or maybe that's i don't know you know next year is the 40th anniversary of Fliggin jesus jeez so, well, you know, that's, I guess that's a marker. Right. Know? And, uh, you know, maybe I, I'm just speculating. I don't know, you know, maybe do that whole record and then maybe some of these tunes or something. And, uh, you know, so, but those other songs were really fun to write, but we were and worked and there's songs we threw away and there's stuff we never finished. And there's several minutes of material in there. And I was trying to get him back into the vibe of, you know, lyrics and all that. I mean, you know, I'd gotten rusty with it after that many years because my VFX career would just just took over my life for twenty years. Again, that's again that's fascinating to me. I mean, how did you move into the effects career? Well, uh, after Doctor No entered, there was a, a period of of meandering and you know shitty jobs and being dirt dirt or, and uh, I actually wrote during that too. And uh, that's when I started sending stuff out to the uh, horror magazines at the time right. and uh, never got any uh, accept acceptances, but uh, you know, I was learning a lot. And then um, 
I had another band in the early nineties called Stigmata. It was a three piece with a really talented singer and bass player. Turned out he was a meth freak. So that kind of derailed things, but uh, <laughs> kind of had a Sabbathy Alice in Chains vibe, you know, in the nineties right. thing. So that a good. And, uh, but by that time I was about 35 and you, you know, Kyle, you're not going to be a rock star. It's not going to happen. And uh, I was already playing around with 3D software on computers at home, just monkeying around with it. And Babylon 5 happened to be on the air. I don't know if you had that show in Britain or not. Oh, Babylon 5 is it's like the first four seasons of that show. Oh, yeah. Science fiction oh, yeah. ever. Yeah. J. Michael yeah. Straczynski is a genius. Yeah. Okay, I'll take that as a yes. You know, and, <laughs> and well, I worked at Foundation Imaging. That was my, uh, they're the people who did first did full CG effects on TV seasons one through four of Babylon five. No way. And uh, so I was into B5 and I was, I loved how the effects looks and I could tell right. I go, well, that was done with computers. This is next level. This is the next thing because right. you see even Star Trek at that time was still mostly done with uh, miniatures of the enterprise D that's why the shots aren't that exciting. Yeah. Um, because there were slow motion control shots and you know, you don't really, well, these days you have camera mobility in Star Trek. Uh, season three of Picard is actually very well done, and uh, space stuff's beautiful. Space I'm, stuff's beautiful. I'm, I'm and, only halfway through the season, so no spoilers. So you yeah, know. no, 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 no. But look how good the Titan looks. Oh, you know? oh, oh! Just it. Oh. Yeah, I was well, asked to previs that stuff, and I didn't use the same software package, and I wouldn't get up to speed in time, so I had to turn them down. I was really <sighs> bummed because I wanted to shoot it, but anyway. I, it's fine but the uh anyway so i said okay well i'm gonna put my nose into it and find out how this is done at the time okay. it was done in, it was done in a uh, software package called lightweight 3d i uh and as providence would have it slayer covered mr freeze on undisputed attitude so yes. i get a phone call with american recordings or deaf american whatever they were called at the time uh saying uh, slayer would like to cover mr freeze which was hanneman's call apparently and you're offered a uh, uh, an advance of five thousand dollars in order for the band to cover the song. Now I'm dirt poor here. I don't. I don't have. You know. Yeah. You know, and uh, I said, well, absolutely yes. <laughs> and so I so I had an opportunity there to change the trajectory of things. I was working in the clean room at a class one thousand clean room at a CD manufacturing plant <clears throat> in the mastering department, and. Um, I didn't want to be there my whole life. Maybe that's in my aversion to masks. And um, that's a whole other thing. The uh, <laughs> So I took the dough and I realized now I got an opportunity to learn the software. And so I could buy, at the time, what was an expensive, large computer, a Pentium 2 with 256 megs, <laughs> which is not, which you can't fucking type on that thing. And uh, <laughs> And but at the time, you know, so uh, with that Slayer dough, I had a little money in my pocket. I bought that. And at the time, there were um, God, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, there were uh, FTP download boards. Found a cracked version of the software, learned it, and within six months, this is the short version of the story. But within six months, I had a job at Foundation Imaging, which is what I targeted because those were the Babylon Five guys. I wanted to do spaceships, I wanted to do stuff like that. Let's see if I could change that. So they hired me. And it turned out when they hired me, they offered money that was double what I was making at the time, which wasn't much anyway, but it was a huge jump for me. Right. right? And I go, oh, well, okay, I can, I can live with this. And so I started working there. They threw me on a Saban kids show called Mystic Nights of Tiernanog, which was shot in Ireland on 16. 
And uh, so we're throwing lens flares at monsters and doing split. Anyways, I'm learning how television effects are done, not all CG shots. So right. I needed that. I needed that education anyway, because, you know, you, you're new. You, 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 you swab the latrine. And uh, but then they were also doing Star Trek Voyager. Babylon 5 had gone to Netter Digital for its last season. Right. And uh, so B5 but all the B5 assets are on the server. So my first day at uh, Foundation Imaging, I call up the Agamemnon and I call up the, the B5 and the Star Furies. And I'm just looking at the uh, at the 3D files and uh, just seeing how the models were built and everything, you know, and uh, the stuff that inspired me to come there I had actually had access to the 3D files. And I was, you know, kind of playing around with them. It was, it was pretty awesome that the content directory was still there. So anyways, months down the road, Voyager's in trouble. They have a giant episode called, I think, called Dark Frontier. The Borg take over the Voyager. We're all going to die. You know, oh, my God, when my seven, jumpsuit. When seven and nine comes at the show. Maybe, maybe. My, you know, my jumpsuit has electronic shit all over it. And uh, they're basically centibytes with computers. Yeah. And uh, and anyway, they were obviously inspired by the centibytes. Um, so I ended up, they knew I, I could do space stuff. So they brought me in and I did some shots for that. That show won the Emmy that year. I didn't get a statue, but uh, the, but I have them now. And um, the, uh, and so from then on, I could, I, I got to go up into the A-team slot and work on the other stuff. So when that place folded, a lot of us moved over to a place called Radium to do the Firefly pilot in 2002. Joss Whedon show with right. Nathan Fillion. With, with Nate Fillion, who's a, who's, who's a great guy. And, um, and Adam Baldwin was great, too. And um, they were all cool. And so anyways, we did that. And then that place split off from Radium, became Zoic Studios, which still exists today. And I was there for like four or five years. So that's right. where we did the whole season one of Firefly. And, and then the pilot for Battlestar Galactica. Then the Serenity film. So I was on all that stuff. And then uh, various other shows. And then I ended up, then the Galactica operation split from Zoic after season two and moved over to Universal to be an autonomous in-house VFX uh, uh, house right. specifically for that show. So I ended up joining that team. I stayed there for 10 years. And uh, we did all the BSG stuff. We did Caprica, which was a turd, but you know, you do one for the meal and one for the real. Um, we did defiance and all the bsg uh dvd movies stuff like the plan razor Mm -hmm. uh, and blood and chrome was the last thing we got to do and uh, that was cool and so i stayed with them for the for the longest time and so during all that time now as we're doing blood and chrome we start getting the idea maybe let's start doing shows again so for a while there i had heavy duty vfx career plus going to band rehearsals at night and doing shows on weekends and I was 50 at the time. And it was, you Dude, know, that would have killed someone half your age. You know? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm 50 now, and there's no way I could cope yeah. with that kind of schedule. Just, just... My weight got down to 180. That was awesome. <laughs> 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 I'm 6'1", so really, you know, it kind of helped. But right. uh, but that was great because I was constantly busy. And uh, it was really cool. So the so the visual effects career, plus the the writing when I was young and all the horror stuff, uh, the band stuff and being in that world and the constant creativity of music and VFX. Once I sat down to seriously write again, all of it came together, you know, it's, and it's the life, of, it's the life experience as well that comes through in your writing. Oh yeah. Well now, you know, I wrote, well, I learned when I was 
so I rewrote when the COVID hysteria began. Yeah. Right. I made a conscious effort. I'm not going to participate in this. And um, <laughs> you want something to go away? Quit buying it. And um, non-participation goes a long way. And so while the rest of the world was biting its nails and wearing masks and cussing each other out at the grocery store and wiping their eyeballs with Vaseline or whatever the hell it was they were doing, I had an opportunity here and I had already written an outline with a friend of mine for a low budget horror western. So instead of just writing that as a short story, I wrote that as a hundred thousand word novel, which was right. a piece of shit. I've since rewritten it. But then I pulled the my buddy sent me my live wire manuscript from the nineties. He goes, when's the last time you looked at this? I said, oh, all right. So I looked at that and I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I loaded up the, the manuscript and I go, I'll just brush it up. You know, mm-hmm. next thing I know, I'm re- I'm completely just put it to the side, used it for some reference and completely rewrote it from the ground up. And uh, but it kept the elements of the 90s version where there's a sinister corporation. There's a big attack on the VLA. There's all this uh, craziness in it, but with real characters, high velocity, high octane action, which comes from my VFX career. It has to. I know right. it did. And uh, so there's a lot of very cinematic things inside the book because there's on the macro level, there's giant action sequences in it. And on the micro level, people are dealing with a lot of inner emotional turmoil and um, shame and guilt and broken relationships and all that in the midst of giants so hope that didn't sound like a word salad but uh <laughs> so how, how did you come to hook up with joe and, and, and crystal crystal lake you know oh um what happened was uh i was you know one time to start getting stuff out there uh-huh. you know, i had these novels and early drafts some short stuff and uh <clears throat> they had i can't remember how i stumbled across shallow waters but that's where it started. They have a thing every month called Shallow Waters, 1,500 word stories. You, you send them in and Joe, is, uh, he selects the 10, 15, 20 stories he wants to run in the month and people vote on them. So, so right. uh, first one I did was uh, something called Freezer Burn. And uh, then a couple of things didn't get selected. And then after that, I had about 11 in a row Um in the uh i never won but uh but in while all that was going on i did place a couple times but uh it wasn't really about that it was just you know getting it out and while that was going on though i started to uh i had some other stories go out and i started building this whole universe most of which takes place in a um in an area called walpurgis county which is overseen by this snarling mountain called walpurgis peak and so it's one of the most haunted places ever you know it's and it's just my take on that kind of theme. And a lot of that stuff started seeping its way and intertwining throughout all these stories. It's tangentially mentioned in Livewire. It's in some other stuff that's uh, been released and it's really permeates the shallow water stuff. So a lot of the stuff that I write in some way kind of somehow weaves through the other stories, whether, you know, directly and overtly or sometimes even just a casual mention. See, you know? I mean, do you think that, that that goes back to your work with Babylon 5 and BSG? Because you know, that, that's serious world building, but it's doing it in a way that, yes, everything's interconnected, but it's telling its own story at the same time. Uh, it might be. And also, I, get, I think I was pretty influenced too when I was younger, the way the Dark Tower would pop up in King stuff. You, right. know, you, know, you know, like you're at the end of Insomnia and, you know, guys lying there dying. He has a vision of the tower. 
And uh, yeah. and I go, oh, wow. Oh, that was smart. That's interesting. And then even like, in, I think it's in Wolves of the Collar, I think he writes himself into it. Because, oh, no, at the end of Wolves of the Collar, somebody finds a copy of Salem's A Lot in a cave. I think that's right. what it is. I go, oh, you sneaky little bastard. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I thought, that's brilliant. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of writers that have their own world and their recurring characters. And, right. And, you know, you know, Joe Smith, Ace Detective or whatever. Right. And, right. So when I, I have a recurring character called Billy Bochamp, Discount Exorcist. And uh, so that those are a little more tongue in cheek. But they all take place in the Walpurgis universe. And he's, uh, you know, there's a lot of that's where the second tier of Fallen Angels fell. You know. Right. The fallen angels fell on uh, Mal Herman or Mount Hermon, uh, but the second tier, the losers, the dummies, you know, <laughs> they fell the Walpurgis Peak. That's how he sees it. <laughs> Slackjawed troglodytes. You know. uh, so and oh, I'll carry uh, on. Sorry, oh, carry. oh no, no. So I'm I'm just running my food hole. Um, so as that went on, they had an open as that shallow water scene went on, which was. Uh, I was really having fun with because cramming things into 1500 words, as you can tell, probably by the way I speak is very difficult. And um, so uh, there was an open call. I think it was early. I think it was May or June of last year for Uh novels. And uh, I had LiveWire. I'd already had a third draft. I paid for an editor and the whole bit and got it in what I thought was publishable shape. I mean, I, I really went for, I wanted to do it. You know, so I did three dash, paid the money for the editor, the whole bit, which is, uh, I can't recommend hiring an editor enough. And that really helped get it in shape, the characters and stuff. Excuse me. Opened other doors and everything while I was doing the changes. Because that's really where the fun is. That's where all the fun detail comes in. You know, in visual effects, the detail is the biggest hassle. But in writing, that's where the fun is. And um, so... Uh, I sent it in and apparently it was the first one accepted in the open call and just buzzed its way through the uh, stack. So, uh, cause it's formatting is, is a little different than your, your average novel. So mm-hmm. it's kind of inspired by Crichton stuff. So you have like official documents in it and, you know, uh, defense intelligence agency interviews about the incident. And, you know, so it has a little bit of that cause it's also a visual experience, not only with the stuff that is written, but by the way it is lays on the page. Some of it should also be visual. So the whole thing is kind of a package, I like to think, you know. So how do you feel about the book now that it's out? I just hope it has legs, you know. <laughs> I hope that people enjoy it. The reviews have been nice. People have right. been very kind of doing reviews. There aren't a lot of them, but I mean, because the thing's only been out a week, you know. And uh, it's been, it's cool what people are saying about it. I go, wow, I don't, you know, it's nonstop. It's crazy. It's psychotic. It's, you know, it's this or that. It's, you know, I mean, um, somebody said this is a crazy ass book or something, you know, some said it's like a B movie, but that's not a bad thing. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. That's the kind of thing that makes people want to pick up a book. You right, know? right. I mean, cause I mean, you got, yeah, I, I don't know if you haven't been Britain, but you know what a high tension tower is, or if you've been to the States, right. You know, yeah, yeah. The giant, well, that's on the cover. Yeah. Uh, well, part of the danger in the situation in that book is that those, those things are walking around, right? And uh, and they're not friendly Ents like in uh, Lord of the Rings or anything, you know. But these are hundred foot steel monsters with electricity buzzing through them. But the uh, which is all you know fun and games, but they also emit what we call the signal, and that's what can get under the under your skull 
and it gets in there. And since it's a malevolent entity behind all of this, it stirs and scrambles up your guilt and your shame and your regrets. And so you're dealing with all that surfacing as it's taunting you with that in the midst of all that crazy and a gigantic thunderstorm. So it's just piling on, you know, so you have to deal with the micro again, you know, of the, your inner torments. And a lot of it is failed relationships and how all that came apart. And, you know, as anyone can tell you, it's one of the worst things you can go through in your life, you know, especially in some cases if death and guilt are involved. And um, then you just have the absolute nutso bananas stuff of the electrical grid basically walking around, you know, which sounds silly, but uh, it makes sense when you read it. And, and, and uh, the, uh, and it's all springs from a place called the very large array, which is in Socorro, New Mexico, which really exists. Uh, it's an array of 27 gigantic 90 foot, 92 foot tall radio telescopes. The SETI uses for it for the social. Uh, I, I think signals, SETI yeah. used it. I think yeah. it featured in, it featured in Contact too. But yeah. uh, I, I had written the VLA thing part of the story before Contact came out in the early nineties. <laughs> but the uh, the um, so wackiness ensues there, and that's where the signal first strikes is in the VLA crew while all of this is happening, and the and the nasty corporate entity who may have occult leanings is called Medusa Engineering. And they also surface as uh, them and the they're kind of the uh, the front for the Medusa cult, which is uh, which is kind of like your Illuminati Rothschild. Uh, they're 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 Google Goldman Sachs and uh, you know think of any other nefarious uh, and the and the uh, and the CIA sort of all wrapped up in the one. Yeah, the Raytheon CIA. Excuse me. They're Raytheon, Rothschilds, and Google all wrapped up into one with an occult overlay. <laughs> how, could, how does anybody not want to read this book? You know what I mean? It, yeah, it, is, yeah. it is perfect. When you say yeah, B-movie yeah. fodder, it is perfect B-movie fodder, but given the sort of... Not if you throw big, $80 million at it, it won't be. <laughs> well, given the big, but given the big budget treatment, you know what I mean? So it's like, th- oh, that's yeah. the kind of thing you want to see. You you need you need to phone the guy who did Independence Day. You you yeah, really yeah. do. Roll it Again, that is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, get that in his hands because he, well, we're, he we're will definitely make the shit a, out of that. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to do a pitch deck for it. I have a friend of mine that, who I've been working with in BFX for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've tried to get a couple of projects here. Sure we're going to do a pitch deck for this and my other novel. And we have a, another script that got some attention but never got made. And uh, But I'm going to do that and send it to, to directors I've worked with and stuff. You know, I spent 19 months on Top Gun Maverick and uh, that was a pretty cool experience too. But, see, uh, you, know, you, you, you don't get away with saying I spent 90 months on Top Gun Maverick and not talk about that because, you know, there's no smell like aviation fuel in the world. That That is uh, the stuff that just makes... Well, the, oddly enough, the aviation fuel was why we were hired because it was $30,000 an hour. And uh, <laughs> it was it's cheaper to hire us to block all the aerial scenes out in CG before they flew them. So we were right. so, so we were a previous team. What we did, we were the director and everything and uh, I never met Mr. Cruz. I saw him, but I never met him. And right. um, but he's the dude's legit. And um, so we work with a director, Joe Kaczynski. He was a great dude. And so the script was. I mean, we the script was still in flux when we started. So we did very a lot of different versions of the missions and the scenarios and all that stuff before we. So you know, I did the Cobra move and all the Dark Star stuff and all that. So we laid all that stuff out first, and then the, the Navy flew the missions. 
very, very similar to what we blocked out. Right. right? But so after all that was shot and all, and we had to make sure it did work with the story. Once we started getting, you know, dailies back in, we'd, we'd amend things because we're doing another, we're, we're shooting in the sky again in four weeks so we can do some fixes. So we'd get those planned and they'd go shoot that and come back. And so the movie took a long time. And uh, so after all that was shot and they got a pretty decent cut together with our previs on it, our job was to do the po- what they call post viz And that's to make those shots look acceptable enough so we can start doing screenings. So, and we're rendering with GPU renderers and everything now, and it looks all photoreal, high quality models, you know? So it, we had very good temporary shots in there before our 3D work was handed off to a large visual effects house to finish it all. It just, had to go it just to- a- the film's incredible. It, you know, yeah, I, see, I prefer Maverick to the original, only because yeah. you know, the whole it's a better movie. It's just so good. It's a better movie, you yeah. know. And uh, you know, Tony Scott's film was pretty much born in the edit bay, but there's some beautiful footage in it. And um, but when you see Tom and the other actors, you know, in that F-18 pulling G's, that's real. You know, they're in the back seat of an F-18F, and that's right. the two seat. So they're sitting in the Wizzo's seat. The Wizzo is the weapon system officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he controls all the smart bombs and all that stuff with the pilot up front. So they both wear the same helmet, right? So Tom's in the back wearing his Maverick helmet. The pilot, a guy named uh, Trambo, uh, he's one of the best low-level fighter pilots in the world. He's flying Tom around. They really That's really Tom in the backseat of that F-18 when they take off from the carrier. That shot is absolutely real. And he's not flying the jet, but he's in the backseat and with a camera array right? There's four cameras in there. And then uh, other cameras are over the shoulder of the pilot. So when they cut and they're flying through the valley or over the ocean, you see the back of Maverick's helmet. That's actually, it's not Tom flying, but it's real. You know, same with all the other actors, same with Rooster and with Phoenix and everybody else in the movie. So, and she was just a little, you know, hundred pound ballerina chick. She was getting pummeled back there, but she hung, you know? And uh, so there's a lot of realism there. And that stuff, but there's some stuff that was so dangerous you couldn't do it. So you know, when, when Maverick flies between the two jets and they break right to left, I mean, you know, that's a CG shot I did, but you know, another house finished it off. You know, the Cobra maneuver is aerodynamically impossible. You know, without tearing the wings off but at that speed. So, so we are counting down. Uh, they're about to, to the zoom is about to kick us off. So, Kyle, oh. tell me and tell everybody else why they need to buy Livewire. I'll do they need to buy spin. live because well, they need, they to, buy need live to buy it because it's getting incredible. That's my that's my take on the book. So you know, it's, there high, you go. it's high octane action, top fuel, funny car madness with high tension towers and deep psychological horror. And before that, if you want a free sample of my writing prior to that, you can download Life Returns based on the Doctor No song of the same name. That's a novella. It's probably about you know, it's about twenty thousand words. And that is a full-on gothic horror tale that tells you the full story behind the incident in the song of Aunt, uh, Uncle John and Aunt Mary and all of that. That's also can, at Amazon. Where can people find that? At Amazon? They're both at, 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 at Amazon. They're at Barnes & Noble. They're at Smashwords, all that stuff. So uh, Livewire and uh, Livewire is, uh, you know, it's available in Kindle and paperback. And Life Returns is uh, electronic medium only. But it's free. Zero, not a bupkis. And, uh, <laughs> and how how can you how can you turn down something that's free? Uh, it's free, and it's uh, and and if you were a Doctor No fan, which I hope a lot of you are, it'll uh, you'll find out what really happened in the house that night. Uncle John isn't in bed; he seems to have been moved. And also, we were I worked the lyrics throughout the prose of the story, but it's a full on 
gothic horror tale in her. It, it, uh, I hope it satisfies. And if, if you like that, if you want to move into Livewire after that, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's full novel length and we go, you know, way deep in that one. And uh, so, and Life Returns is also as a way to bring people that were fans of what I did in my 20s. Hopefully, if you want to come with me now that I'm 60 and what I'm doing these days, that's the bridge. So we're going to have to do this again when you write your next novel, which I'm expecting ASAP. I actually started to outline it a couple of days ago because I realized I'm going to have to work with an outline next time because I just, you know, at least with Livewire, I had a template, you know, and I've yeah. had a couple of long pieces peter out because I didn't outline it. So I think I'm going to have to change my uh, way of doing things. So you learn Kyle, by doing. Kyle, thank you for your time tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Tim, thanks for having me. I, I'm dude, sorry I was late today. but Dude, uh, it's, 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 it's been a bucket list interview. Seriously. Thank you. Oh, God, you bet. It was uh, very, uh, thanks for having me. So it's it's Life Returns and Live Wire. We'll start with L. You can't beat it. Amazon.com. Just type my name in there. And you can also uh, find, you can also download the Dr. No song, Tell Me There's No Devil at <sighs> KyleToucher.com. Kyle, thank you, brother. We will speak again soon. You bet. Kirk out. Okay. <laughs> See you later, Kyle. Bye-bye. All right. From the catacombs of Fallen
Okay, that was Dr. No with There Is No Devil. And now, folks, it's time to meet the one and only godfather of Pulp Fiction, Charles Adai. Hi, Charles. Hi, how are you? I'm very, very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing well also. It's good to see you. Good. Um, so... Gun Honey Volume 2. Joanna Gun Honey Volume back. 2. I'm delighted it came out. Right. And uh, delighted to talk to you about it. Good. So do you want to bring us up to speed with the Joanna Tanso? Because Volume 1 is... Um, so if you forgive me, I am like a, a, a real old-school pop fan. All right. Classic revenge story. It's Yeah, just well, there you go. Wonderful but you don't know it at first. So to some extent, we're in spoiler yeah. territory, but I think that's okay. We're on volume two. We can spoil volume one a little bit. Okay. I'm, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I think, but because yeah. uh, you need to know a little bit about volume one to get into uh, volume two. They stand alone, but it helps. Right. So it's a revenge story, but you don't know it. You know that there's this uh, young woman who's a refugee. She came to America from somewhere in Asia. Her family was murdered, and that's part of her backstory. But you don't think that the book is actually about her murdered family. You think that's only her backstory. And then it turns out, once you get deeper into the story, that uh, the villain she's hunting for is, in fact, part of her murdered family. She thought she was the only survivor. And, in fact, there is another survivor, and it's the man she's hunting for. That's a. I, I was very happy to be able to pull that twist. Uh, right. And then there's another twist at the end, which I won't spoil. The um, the upshot of it was, I think a lot of people came to Gun Honey because of the sexy covers, which, by the way, I love. You know, yes. I, I am in, in awe of what people like Adam Hughes and Robert McGinnis and Bill Sienkiewicz do. Uh, I can't do that. That's why I'm in awe of it. And the uh, paintings of uh, Joanna Tan, the, the main character in Gun Honey, are gorgeous. She looks beautiful. The interior art. So I think a lot of people came to the series saying... I don't know if I like the story and the hell with it. I don't care. The pictures are good, which they are. Uh, but I hope that when they, they read it, they um, they found something to enjoy in the story too. And that's why we uh, we keep coming back because there's more story to tell. See, I did not see the the middle twist coming at all. Uh-huh. Good, that, good. That's wonderful. That's the kind of thing that I love. Sometimes, you know, comics, especially, and, and pop novels have a predictable sort of A to B to C to D. It's true. Um, this didn't. Gun Honey does yeah, The best of them don't. You know, it, so where did Hard Case Crime come from? Hard Case Crime, you didn't ask that, but I'll answer it anyway. Yeah. No, I was going to get to that in a minute because because I'm a big I'm, I'm a fan of the imprint as well. So oh, I'm, I appreciate that. No, you know, I won't go through the whole history, but it's not that. But I read these books, these pulp novels. Uh, my dad had a collection on his shelf. I read them. My grandmother had some old Mickey Spillane's, and I read them. And if you read a hundred of these old pulp novels, ninety-three of them are pretty bad. Let's be honest. But that's ninety-three of anything, yeah. is bad, right? Ninety-three yes. percent of science fiction novels are bad. Mm. But those seven, oh, the ones that surprise you, the ones that have good twists, those were good. And so when we, my partner and I, uh, Max Phillips, who's a graphic designer, he does our covers. Uh, when we were sitting 20 years ago at a, at a, at a bar talking about stuff we loved, we talked about those seven. We didn't talk about the 93 we didn't like. Right. We said, why doesn't anyone publish books like that anymore? Even if they were the same exact books, those seven are out of print. They've been out of print since 1953. Why don't we bring them back, paint new gorgeous covers and bring them back? And so the goal was to go to people who might be dismissive of Pulp Fiction. They might think of it only in terms of its cliches. 
Mm-hmm. And the parodies, you know, the private eye with the fedora and the saxophone on the soundtrack and the whiskey in his desk drawer and the leggy blonde. And when they see all those those tropes, all those familiar things, they say, that's all there is. There's nothing to surprise right. me here. Yeah, I might like the fedora because it's a cool hat, but that's not enough to keep me interested. <laughs> and then you say, actually, oh, my God, there's so much to keep you interested, but you don't know it. And so we went to our shelves and we plucked down the ones that did have surprises, the ones that really knock you on your butt. When you read them, even 50 years later, you say, oh, my God, that's a hundred year old book. And right. it still shocked me. That's that's what you want. So anyway, that's where Hard Case Crime came from. And the goal when we write our own is to uh, live up to that. You don't always succeed, but you try to live up to that standard. I mean, my my my, my version of Pops goes, found Lovecraft, found Heinlein. There you, you know, go. Through, through, through Father. But then I find the shadow and the spider. And I, I keep going back to them and, and, and you know. Mark Savage, that, maybe. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's my sort of pop history. Um. I'm mixing it with the sort of hard case crime uh, take on it. It's just wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. You know, so so Lovecraft comes out of Weird Tales. So that's mm. the fantasy end of Pulp. And uh, Heinlein was Astounding Stories. Right. And, yeah. uh, so that's the science fiction end of Pulp. But in the in the high age of Pulp, you had Pulps of all sorts. So you had fantasy and horror. You had science fiction and you had crime. The big crime Pulp was Black Mask, but there were 20 others. Dime right. Detective, Spicy Detective. But there were also nurse pulps where all the stories were about nurses and there were aviation pulps where all the stories were about airplanes and Westerns, of course. And so you had this whole, it was like Netflix, only it was a newsstand and you could pick out whichever genre you wanted. And all of that's gone today, except uh, hero pulps. So the thing that you were talking about, the spider and, and, and uh, the shadow yeah. that has its, its successor is Marvel comics. Its successor is DC, right? Mm-hmm. So, those were the original costumed vigilantes. So the shadow uh, eventually turns into Batman, right? So Batman is like the, the bastard child of Zorro and the Count of Monte Cristo and the shadow. And everyone loves Batman. He's basically a pulp uh, hero. And Superman similarly is basically Doc Savage. You know, Doc Savage was the man of bronze and Superman's the man of steel. And I don't mean to make them sound derivative. I'm a big no. comics fan. You can, but that's where it comes from. So that survived. Superheroes survived. Uh, but crime stories sort of dwindled. I mean, technically, Batman's supposed to be the Dark Knight detective, but he's not He's not detecting all that much. <laughs> uh, even Barry Allen, right? The Flash, he's supposed to be like a police uh, forensic scientist. He's not doing that much police work. But... Uh, detective stories kind of got relegated to, oh, that's that's uh, that's schmaltzy, old-fashioned, cliche stuff. That's my grandpa's stuff. But a really good detective story can be great. So anyway, so, we're, we're trying to revive it. So why, why do you think the pulps disappear? Because it goes from the 30s to the 40s to the 50s. Was it was it a post-war thing, maybe? I, I, yeah, I, so I, I, I mean, who, who knows? But I have my opinions. I think mm-hmm. the pulp magazines disappeared and were replaced by paperbacks, which were more portable. And I suspect, because you could stuff a paperback in your coat pocket. A pulp right. was a big thing the size of a magazine. Uh, and there were paper shortages during the war. And I, I'm sure there were many other factors, but the pulps basically died because paperbacks replaced them. But paperbacks were huge. Now you could say paperbacks still exist. It's true. They do. But it used to be that you could print a hundred thousand copies of any old crime novel and be sure of selling that. Right. Literally, you know, the, the old paperback line that was known as the king of the field, gold medal, uh, would publish a hundred thousand copies of anything, not just their big authors, anything. Today, if you're a mid-list mystery writer you might sell five thousand copies or six or ten 
or if you're really lucky, maybe 15. But the days when 100,000 people uh, read each new paperback as it came out have gone away. Why? Well, because movies became big and then TV in particular. Movies were big in the 30s, but TV came in and people had something else to do with their evenings. You know, it used to be if you were ready to go out for a night out, you'd go to the movies. But if you wanted to stay in and you had the same 25 cents to spend, you'd buy a paperback and you'd stay in. Or, or you just still old style radio dramas. And just, oh, well, that's yeah. true. You're, you're yeah. absolutely right. And radio was huge. And in ah. fact, the radio dramas often adapted stories from the pulp. So there was right. a very symbiotic relationship. You're right. People could stay in and listen to the radio for free. But there was more of a culture of reading for whatever reason than there is uh, than there was later. And I think it is also a generational shift. So the generation that fell in love with Kurt Vonnegut and the electric Kool-Aid acid test, you know, uh, the flower children and the hippies, they weren't going to read about some quasi fascist tough guy, you know, beating people up, beating up punks in the street. And so it became unfashionable to read. And to be fair, some of the authors were quasi fascist, you know, uh, so <laughs> There was a generation that said, that's my dad's thing. And there was a generation gap, right? And so in the 70s, paperbacks were what your dad read, and you did not do what your dad did. You just didn't. <laughs> uh, and then it it just kind of died. And uh, there were always paperbacks, but it wasn't the dominant way people got their entertainment. Now, of course, you've got the internet. Right? You've got TikTok. You've got uh, Instagram. You've got all that good stuff. And people still don't read much, although they write more. You know, people write because of email. And text messages, people are engaging with written words more than they did for decades. And kids who grew up on Harry Potter are accustomed to the idea of finding their fun in on the pages of a book. So I think there's a chance that a new generation will 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 come back to it. But the truth is, we don't sell 100,000 copies of everything we do. Uh, we all we do sometimes only sell five or six or 10,000 copies of a book, but it's enough to keep the lights on. And it helps that we have some uh, folks in our roster like Stephen King, who has written three books for us. And when it's a Stephen King book, then it sells. And that helps us find the resources to publish a lot of less well-known writers, which is why he does it. He wants to help support other writers, which is wonderful. So I was, I was going to ask you, how do you actually make the King connection? It's uh, it's a funny story, and I've told it before, but the mm. basic answer is that I wanted to publish authors that I knew he loved, because I'd read essays he'd written, I'd read articles he'd written, interviews he'd given. And so I grew up reading people like Richard Stark, which was the pen name for Donald Westlake, under which he wrote his darker crime fiction, the Parker stories, which, by the way, have become many, many movies most recently with Mel Gibson, with Jason Statham. There's a new TV series coming. So Richard Stark wrote the Parker books. There's, there's, there's a Parker TV series coming. There's a Parker TV series coming. I think Shane oh. Black is the one putting it together. Oh, um, that, oh that is going to be good then. The same guy who did The Nice Guys. Now, the one thing is Parker in the books has no sense of humor. He is a ruthless, mean son of a bitch. And <laughs> Absolutely. he doesn't have a sense of humor. Anything Shane Black does has a fantastic sense of humor. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that gels. I, but mm. I mean, he can do no wrong in my book. I love Shane Black. So, uh, so Parker, and I knew that King loved Richard Stark specifically because he wrote a book called The Dark Half which was all about a writer and his dark pseudonym. And he named the dark pseudonym George Stark after Richard Stark. Stark. And that's not the only example. There were others. So what I did was I tracked down somebody who could reach him. I looked online for the name of his literary agent. That didn't work out for whatever reason. I couldn't find the answer. But I found the name of his accountant. 
And his accountant ran, I don't know why it was in an article. And his accountant had an office on Park Avenue in Manhattan, which happens to be where I live. I don't live on Park Avenue, <laughs> not that well, <laughs> but I live in Manhattan. And yeah. uh, so I went to the accountant's office and knocked very timorously on the door. And I said, I have a package here, a care package about this new line of books I'm creating. And I think Stephen King would probably really get a kick out of it. Any chance you could just pass it to him. And the accountant said, sure. And, and then I didn't hear anything for months. And all I asked in, in my note, I said, this is what the books are going to be like. This is what they'll look like. What would help is when I publish Gil Brewer or right. David Dodge or Peter Rabe, these are authors you grew up reading, but today nobody remembers their names. It would help if instead of just saying on the front cover, Peter Rabe, Gil Brewer, David Dodge, I could also say, this is a great line of books, Stephen King, because Somebody who knows your name, but not theirs, might pick the book up. And right. give it a- so it's, it's good to have King as a pull quote on the book. because Exactly. It right. Yeah. I was asking for five words, six words. That's it. One sentence. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear back for a month or two. Maybe it was three or four, actually. Uh, and I assumed I never would, because why would he respond? A million people ask him for a lot of things. Right. And we didn't know each other. Uh, but then I got a call from his agent, his literary agent, the guy I couldn't find. And he said, I, I'm Stephen King's literary agent. And Steve asked me to call you and let you know that he does not want to write you a blurb. And I said, OK, thank you for letting me know. That's kind of you. Because he went on, he'd like to write you a book instead. <laughs> and I was like, OK, that well, that's uh, that's that's surprising. That's not what I expected. I would never have had the audacity, the chutzpah to ask him to write a book for us. Right. We couldn't afford to pay anything. You know, we had no money. Uh, and he said, look, you'll, you'll, you'll pay if, if it sells, you know, when it sells, the copies sell, you'll pay as generously as any publisher ever pays. I know, I mean, he didn't say these words, but I assume he said, I don't need the large payment up front because I know the book's going to sell. It's not like a book from Stephen King won't sell and I'll get the money in the end. But he had the confidence or, or the generosity to not require it up front. And we didn't we wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. And he said, I'm going to go with you small guys anyway. And he wrote one book called The Colorado Kid, which became our first actual bestseller and really put us on the map because a lot of newspapers and magazines and websites wrote about us. Uh, and that's why we're here today. I, I guarantee we would have done six or seven books without that, but we would have run out of steam because they weren't making that much money. Uh, but having one successful book uh, helped cover the costs for several dozen that were only modest successes. And so uh, eight years later, he wrote a second book called Joyland and volunteered that to us. And I was very grateful. It's one of the best he's ever written. I love Joyland. A lot of people really love Joyland. Right. And then eight years after that, he wrote one called Later. And uh, so we've been fortunate. Now, I would never have dreamed of asking for one. And we've had the good fortune to receive three. So I, he, he's our guardian angel. He, he's uh, he's like the the good fairy uh or the blue fairy, whatever the, the person in uh, the person in Pinocchio who makes Pinocchio a real boy. Uh, oh, Geppetto, the real publishing. Oh, those are the the, the, fa- the fairies, just yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's that's the Stephen King connection. You know, a few of our books have done quite well, but nothing compares to Stephen King. You know, the, Stephen King's on a, in a category all of his own. Uh, Gun Honey has done very well, which astonished me. I was so delighted and so grateful because I, he, I don't think you should be astonished because it's it's almost like you. you're running yourself down. It's a great story. I mean, it, it's literally, well, thank you. it's a 20th you know, you don't know it's a great story because you've already bought it, right? So <laughs> you know, there are a lot of great stories out there. There are comics yeah. out there that are terrific and nobody ever reads and it's it's just, it's not fair, but what can you do? Uh, so it's a combination of a great story with um, something, whether it's the beautiful art or the hook or the concept or good luck, something got people to pick it up because once you pick it up, I hope the story 
engages you. I, I, I'm sure yeah. people like the story, but uh, they'd never have known that if they didn't pick it up. So my my hat is off, and my and 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 my gratitude is expressed to Adam Hughes and and all those guys, Faye Dalton. Uh, you know, all these artists who put their stamp on our covers because that's what people see first. Uh, and I think there, there was something missing from the comic book stores that, uh, it's not true. I'm about to say something that's absolutely not true, but I'll say it no, anyway. I'll, I'll admit say it's it, not say true. it. Go, go feel it. Absolutely say it. <laughs> what I was going to say is something that was missing, which was something a little naughty, racy, spicy. Of course, that's not true. I mean, look at all of J. Scott Campbell's covers and look at Vampire Ella and look at Red Sonia, right? right? So it's not like we were the only ones doing it, but um, there's not what I would call enough of it. There's certainly not too much of it. And so there was an appetite out there and we came out and we said, Gun Honey's about this character who's extremely competent, extremely good at what she does. What she does is is a criminal trade, but she also happens to look really quite beautiful and she doesn't wear that much in the way of clothing. And I think that combination, it's not missing from the newsstands, but I missed it and I'm glad to add more of it. I mean, Jonathan is, is a wonderful anti-hero. She's not... You know, she doesn't fit into. She's not. She's not a villain. She's not a good guy. She is. It's <laughs> the epitome of antihero because she'll do what suits her, but she right. has a conscience at the same time. And when yeah, that exactly. She doesn't think, want to think of herself as a villain. That's why. No. So, what does she do? In case somebody doesn't know, she supplies weapons. She's a weapons supplier, but not like here are eight crates of guns. Go have a revolution. She'll supply one weapon at a time. And her specialty is supplying it when it's very hard to get it to you. So if you're in prison, she'll get a gun to you. And it requires smuggling it in in a hollowed out whatever. Uh, she'll get a gun into uh, the White House. She'll get a taser into the Vatican, as it's mentioned once in the in the book. So her specialty is it, she's a little bit, in this sense, more like um, a thief character, like Catwoman, except instead of breaking in places where she's not supposed to be and taking something out, she breaks into places she's not supposed to be and leaves something behind. So that's she, that's what she does. I just think it's the, it's the impossible armorer. She, you know, she gets you the job. She gets what needs to be got to the person who needs it at the time. It's it's the law of supply and demand. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like Q in from James Bond. If you combined Q with James Bond, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, and and by the way, made it a woman at the same time. And so yeah. it, the the funny thing is, so now I'm in the process of writing the third adventure in, in the first adventure as you heard there's this revenge storyline and she discovers the truth about her family in the second there's a uh very vengeful uh former government agent who is unhappy that her mentor got murdered and the mentor who got murdered is the person responsible for the death of joanna's family so we Ties were, back to volume one we're right so volume one this woman gets murdered uh but she kind of deserved it unfortunately mm -hmm. everyone who deserves to be murdered has some friend, has some relative, has some child who doesn't agree with that. And so this person comes after Joanna, frames her for murder and intends to end her life. And uh, it's not giving away any terrible secrets to say Joanna doesn't end up dead because there's a third book coming. Uh, but it's not easy. It's not an easy. Uh, so, jo so Gun Honey, Blood for Blood is that story. It was four issues. It's been collected now in a graphic novel. And, uh, and the third one, which I'm working on now with the same interior artist, Angkor Kang, who does a beautiful job, uh, draws traditionally. So it takes a very long time. It's all pen and ink. None of, none of this much easier digital stuff. I mean, you you still can't 
be a good digital artist without artistic talent, but it does save you some time. So when you're doing backgrounds, for instance, there's a certain amount of cutting and pasting and stamping and so on. But when Ang has a stippled background, he has to draw every one of those dots manually with a pen. So it takes it takes time. Uh, so I think the next Gun Honey is probably coming out at the end of the year, not in the summer, uh, but it's going to look gorgeous. And uh, and the story in that one is going to, I, I won't give away the story, but it, interestingly, even though Joanna's metier is to plant guns and plant uh, other weapons for people to find when they need it, uh, it's the storylines are kind of straying from that because of all the personal mishigas she's dealing with. And so she's not planting guns places so much as dealing with the hundred uh, intelligence agents who want her dead and are on her tail. Uh, but the same talents are helpful. You know, being able to get weapons in hand when it's when no one else could is a helpful talent to have when intelligence agents are on your trail. But we are introducing a new different antihero in a new line of comics that is connected to Gun Honey. I don't know if you heard about this. No, I did not hear about it. So so you uh, so, so you universe building, world building with That's right. This is the 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 Gun Honey cinematic universe, except more comic books. The Gun Honey comic okay. book universe. So I knew that Gun Honey 3 would take a long time to draw. Mm-hmm. And it was worth it, but I wanted to give people something to read in the summer, right? And so I didn't want to go to Ang and say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna drive you at a at a pace that you can't handle. And so I said, take your time, draw it, and and finish it in time for a winter release. But I want to give people something, so I made up a new character whose name is Dahlia Racers, and she has a different criminal specialty. She's still an antihero. She's a fiery redhead, and her specialty is when you are marked for death, she helps you disappear. She is a master at helping people disappear, so much so that her day job is designing illusions for people like David Copperfield and David Blaine and Penn and Teller. But in her private life, she helps people disappear. And who's been marked for death? Well, at the end of Gun Honey 2, Gun Honey Blood for Blood, Joanna and her teammate, Brooke, are being pursued by Brooke's former colleagues, and they're marked for death by the U.S. government, and so she hires Dahlia. Hires is a bit strong. They're ex-girlfriends. So okay. she engages the services of Dahlia Racers and says, you're the best. I'm the best in the world at what I do, but that won't help. I, you know, I can only fight so many people with a gun. Mm-hmm. I need to disappear. And Brooke needs to disappear. And you're the person for the job. And so Dahlia says, no problem. I'm going to take your case and you're going to die. I'm going to make you die. And they're going to believe you're dead. Now, you go somewhere else. Don't tell me where it is. I don't need to know. And I'm going to become one of you. And my partner here is going to become the other. And we're going to start luring the bad guys away from you. And that's the beginning of Heat Seeker. Heat Seeker is the name of this comic. She'll take the heat. When the, when the heat is on, she'll take the heat off you for a price. And well, she's, uh, she's, works best for a price, though, Charles. So, you know. <laughs> Everything's for a price. That's right. Everything's for a price. Oh, so Heat Seeker fantastic. comes out in June. So the next Gun Honey is is not probably till December or maybe even January. Okay. But in the summer, there will be four issues of Heat Seeker. She is, uh, Dahlia is quite an attractive uh, woman as well. Uh, everything she says is a lie. That's the first thing you need to know about her. And she tells you this on page one. You cannot mm-hmm. believe anything. So every cover shows her she's 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 buxom, she's beautiful, and she's a fiery redhead. She's actually not a redhead at all. It's a wig. Everything is a lie. Everything's a lie. Anyway, no. that's so that's a fun that's a fun character. So with with hard case crime, are there any authors you want to work with? Oh yeah, but you haven't had the chance to yet. 
Oh, sure. Ab- absolutely. So on the comic book side, of course, there are people that I grew up uh, reading and some of them may no longer be actively contributing to the field. And so it's not realistic. Some of them may not be alive anymore. Uh, I would it, wouldn't it be great to do something with Frank Miller? I mean, imagine that. Wouldn't it be great to do something with Ed Brubaker, who's a friend and was kind enough to say good things about Dunhoney? He's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, Kurt Busiek, who did, does Astro City. I mean, I, I could rattle off a whole bunch of phenomenal, phenomenal writers. Kurt and, Busiek's Conan is incredible. Ed Brubaker's yeah. Take on Captain America was literally the best Take on Captain America's. Oh, yeah, yeah. For 25 Brubaker years. It's unbelievable. And, you know, look, we're, we're very lucky to work with Max Allen Collins, who did Road hmm. to Perdition, and he did a bunch of Batman and Dick Tracy. Uh, so we have worked with some really phenomenal comic book talent, uh, but there are there more? Yes. On the novel side, uh, there are some people who have been fans of Hard Case Crime for years and I would love to work with, uh, but it just hasn't worked out yet. So, for instance, right. uh, one of Stephen King's sons who writes under the name Joe Hill is a brilliant writer, absolutely phenomenal you, writer. But uh, Mr. Nosferatu is, is going to go to... Yes. Oh, oh it, it's, and even, even you know, his his collection of four novellas, right? The 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 um, good Lord. Now I'm going to forget the name of it. It got yeah. weather in the title uh, and it was adapted as a comic book. It's the one about the uh, glass shards of glass raining down from uh, from the heavens. And then there's yeah. Uh, yeah. there's a gun violence. Anyway, uh, Joe Hill is a phenomenal writer. We've talked about doing something, but his dance card is pretty well full for the next uh, next few years, at least. So I don't know if we'll, we'll, we'll pull it off. Right. Dean Coates is someone I've been talking to for years about doing something. Uh, that it wouldn't it be great to do something with Dean Coons, oh. uh, but it hasn't <laughs> hasn't quite happened yet. But I I would be churlish in the extreme to com- to complain about who I haven't gotten to work with when right. you look at who I have. Uh, so we've worked with Lawrence Block, Ed McBain, uh, Donald Westlake. In terms of Michael Crichton while he was alive, and then authors who were no longer alive, but whose uh, families we've worked with include Ray Bradbury, for instance, uh, and, and many of the other folks that we've uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we've worked with Joyce Carol Oates. We've you know worked with uh, Gore Vidal, all sorts of phenomenal people. So I can't complain too much about the handful I haven't gotten to yet. But there always are going to be a few that I haven't. I wanted to do something with Dan Brown. You know, Dan Brown is an awfully nice man, the guy who wrote The Da Vinci Code. Yeah, no, I know Dan Brown. Is, um, I mean, yeah, he's a great, yeah. story, who, who he's a great storyteller. He's a great um, storyteller. Really, yeah, you know, he's he's the, the momentum, the propulsive quality, the puzzles. And I, I just think, wouldn't it be great to do a Dan Brown comic book? That would be fun. Nobody's done that. Oh. Um, and we've talked about it, but somehow ha- hasn't happened yet. May or may not ever happen. We'll see. Okay. No, that that that, that, that actually is intriguing. Right, it's a fun idea, right? I think I honestly think you should reach out to Frank Miller though, because I think I agree. You know, I just I so I don't have the faintest idea how to reach out to Frank Miller. Uh, I don't know how his health is. I, I imagine if if uh, if he were actively uh, working today, we'd see more coming out. Uh, so I I don't want to intrude if there's any reason that he's not uh, drawing anymore. But I I would love to get in touch. So maybe after I get off this podcast, I'll go try to hunt down a <laughs> see if there's an agent or someone who represents him. I mean, I'd love to work. I know with he's Alfred. still he's still based in House Kitchen, isn't he? I don't know. It's a good question. If he is, I, I can go knock on his door. That's I'm not pretty funny. sure he's still based in the house kitchen. I would pretty sure. You know, I, what the heck? It cannot hurt to ask. You know, it never no, hurts. Exactly. Um, I, mean, I think, you know, given hard case crime, the Frank would be eager to do something with you. Because he, you I mean, know, even, still, if, even if not, I would, I hmm. would send him, you know, a care package of our books just to know that they're in his hands, just to, just right. for the fun of it, you know, and he probably would at least enjoy it. It would put a smile on his face. Um, I'll tell you about, uh, there, there's a 
an artist that I've wanted to work with from literally day one. In fact, before day one, right. before the first issue of Gun Honey was published, because he's so perfect for drawing beautiful women on the covers of comics. And that's Frank Cho. So Frank Cho is seeing Joanna Tan or for that yeah. matter, Dr. Racers drawn by Frank Cho would be a life goal for me. And we've talked, we've, we, I've met him at Comic-Con two or three times and we've talked about it and I've given him copies. So he knows we exist, but again, he's in, he's in ferocious demand and uh, I don't know that it'll ever work out, but I keep trying. I don't give up. I, I keep, I, I'm what, usually what I do, I'll send him a note saying, Hey, if you want me to take no for an answer, say no, <laughs> just say no. And I promise I'm not going to be annoying. Uh, but as long as you keep saying, maybe I'm going to keep, <laughs> I'm going to keep Maybe it's not a no. And that's, that's, well, maybe that's it's not a no. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, you know, you, you've got to keep going. So yes, we know the next two books. Yeah. Are you working on anything in between? Or to come uh, in between. So I'm not myself. I, I I have my hands full writing the four scripts for Gun Honey and the mm. four scripts for Heat Seeker. Heat Seeker's written. Uh, Gun Honey is two and a half issues written. One and a half to go. Uh, the characters are currently in Mongolia. Right. Everyone's got to be somewhere. <laughs> so they are currently in Mongolia. What are they doing there? I'll leave that for uh, for a future conversation. Uh, so I'm writing those, and I don't see any of my own. Uh, comics, any additional comics coming from me personally in that time. Okay. But we do have a, a terrific graphic novel called Noir Burlesque, which is done in a very interesting art style. It is very much the visual tropes of like the classic hard-boiled uh, stuff uh, set in, in the past, you know, tough guys, beautiful women. The interesting art thing is it's all black and white, except for bits of red here and there, a woman's dress, oh. a pool of blood. And, you know, a redhead's hair. And so it's visually very striking. And I'm going to apologize for not remembering off the top of my head the names of the artists. But uh, Noir Burlesque, I think, is coming out in between uh, Gun Honey 3 and Heat Seeker, somewhere right. in there. So we, we do have other comics coming. I'm working with Cynthia Von Buehr, who has done several graphic novels for us and for Titan Comics. The ones she did for us are called Minky Woodcock, and they all have a subtitle. These are period detective stories about a female detective in the 20s, 30s, 40s. The Minky Woodcock books are fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad you like them. I'm just going to push that out there now so that people have to read them because they are as visually stunning as the stories are exciting. It's it's the perfect combination. Cynthia would love to hear that. So I'm going to let her know you said that. Uh, The first book, Cynthia, was uh, uh, Minky Woodcock, The Girl Who Handcuffed Houdini. Yeah. where Houdini, Harry Houdini's wife uh, hires Minky to find out if he's faithful to her, which of course he isn't, uh, as Minky finds out firsthand. The second book, set during World War II, is uh, Minky Woodcock, the girl who electrified Tesla. The reference not being to the car, but to uh, Nikola Tesla, who was an inventor and a great enemy of uh, Thomas Edison. And uh, Tesla, in real life, died in under mysterious circumstances. Houdini also died under mysterious circumstances. So in this case, uh, Minky investigated Tesla's death. And the third one, whose title I can't reveal because it would uh, just break the Internet if anyone ever heard what it was. But uh, Cynthia has sent me the script, and it's very exciting. It's also set, it, it, it spans the entire period. It opens during the Houdini years. Right, and it ends uh, in the World War II era, so it's a three-decade-long story, and you get to meet some uh, some familiar figures that uh, from history that you would find interesting, including at least one we referred to in this conversation, but I won't say who. Uh-huh. See, I mean, that's the thing about Tesla. Tesla dies in grinding poverty. 
When, when, yes, when he, does. he does. He does. He lives in a hotel room at the end mm. of his life uh, at the New Yorker Hotel. You can go visit the room. And uh, all his inventions were either stolen from him, taken from him, uh, sold for a penny. Uh, General well, Electric, as I recall, uh, had his patents on uh, electricity. Uh, it's just it's a sad story. And the wireless transmission of electricity. So if he postulates the wireless transmission of electricity, which then becomes um, come across the actress who helped develop radar and then uh, Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar. And there, there comes Wi-Fi. So you, it's all linked back to Tesla. It all goes back, you know, Tesla was a once in a generation or once in 10 generations talent, you know, a little bit like Einstein. So Einstein also, Einstein doesn't get rich off his inventions, but he changes the world. Tesla neither gets rich nor even gets credit. You know, at least Einstein, everyone uses his word as a, his name as a synonym for genius. Uh, Tesla people today use it as a synonym for an electric car, but I suppose that's better than nothing. You know, today everyone knows the name Tesla and it is connected to invention. So at least that's something. But it's during his life, he was he was basically forgotten, repudiated, reviled, and he didn't deserve it. He really didn't deserve it. So, yes, we are going to have to wrap up in a minute, Charles. So as your parting thought, tell people why they need to read Gun Honey. Gun Honey is a firecracker of a book. If you want to read that is uh, full of twists and turns, crackling dialogue, gorgeous art, sexy women, uh, danger and menace, you'll find it here. Uh, Some of those things are things you'll find in other comics, but I think it's good to have a change of palette. So if you have, uh, you know, filled your, uh, your cafeteria tray with nothing but superheroes, I'm a fan of superheroes. I'll introduce you to my friend here. There's my friend Barry Allen, who if this is an audio only (laughs) podcast, you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I love superheroes, but enough's enough. And at some point you say, I need something different. Just like at the movies, you don't only go to see the Marvel movies. You also will check out Indiana Jones when Harrison Ford comes back to the theater in July. Uh, On the comic book racks, pull one, pull one that's different, pull one that's crime, pull one that's action thriller, and you won't be sorry. Uh, It may not be your steady diet, but man, this is going to excite you. And it's it's a delicious, uh, delicious addition to your meal. So where can people find out more about Hard Case Crime as well? And not just comics, but the books you publish too, because it's a, it's an all-encompassing universe. And well, thank you. Now yeah, you can find public, People need to read it. So where can they find it? Thank you for it? that saying that. So hardcasecrime.com is our website. At the top of the page, you'll see links to some of our comics. Underneath that, you'll see a link to a hundred and more of our traditional novels. And if you click on any title, you'll see the cover art. You'll have a sample chapter you can read for free. So plenty of stuff there, www.hardcasecrime.com. And if you want to try the comics, you can find Gun Henley at any comic book store. Uh, the second collected graphic novel is now out so that you can get in any store as of last week. Uh, the individual issues should be in the back issue boxes, some of them at least, if they're not sold out. And uh, Gun Honey 3 comes probably next January, but Heat Seeker comes this uh, July. So definitely, you will not be sorry. Heat Seeker is a, <laughs> if, if Gun Honey is a firecracker, Heat Seeker is a Roman candle. Well, you've sold me on it already. So I'm going to be reading it. Well, thank you for having me on. And when it's published, yeah. when Heat Seeker comes out, come back on and we'll talk about that again. I'll do it. You got it. Okay. Well, thank you for your time this evening, Charles. My pleasure. Have a wonderful night. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. And that's about it for this time, folks. So until the next episode of Geekorama, uh, so long.